So these days of retreat really offer us an opportunity, as I said this morning, for refuge, but also to deepen in our practice, to begin to see things in our practice and in our meditation that uh, at first we may not see so much in daily life practice, uh, things that may be harder to see in a daily setting, but with the uh, silence and the extended period of meditation, we can begin to see some of these aspects of our experience and understand our relationship to them. We begin right from the beginning in meditation. It's the first thing that we teach in the first beginner's class, really, in terms of the meditation itself, is uh, stay with the breath, see the thinking of the past and the future that's arising that you may get caught in, put it to the side, and stay focused on the breath. Uh, So, you know, we're really doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that uh, on a day of retreat. Uh, We're putting aside the unskillful thinking, the thoughts of the past, the thoughts of the future, these habitual patterns of mind. Uh, To the best of our ability, we are... uh, you know, able to get a little bit of space from them, put them to the side, thoughts as we've been talking about, jobs, relationships, and apartments. And as we begin to put these thoughts to the side more and more and more, uh, and, you know, there's still going to be thoughts, but even if we can begin that are going to arise and there's going to be thoughts that we're going to chase after to some extent, uh, but we begin to develop more tranquility, you know. And overall... You know, this begins to happen in our practice. I mean, this is really the first thing in Dharma practice that we begin to see is that we begin to develop more tranquility. And the next thing that we begin to see, uh, no pun intended, is that we're able to see things more clearly. So I always say these are kind of the two developments of practice that we begin to develop tranquility and then we begin to have a little bit more space from our experience and begin to see things more clearly. So oftentimes on retreat, we're able to see things a little bit more clearly than we are able to in daily life, just again with the silence, the space, uh, the extended meditation. Of course, as we develop this ability to be an observer, to see things more clearly, to see things like somebody you know, as the Buddha said, one person looking at another, somebody standing, looking at somebody sitting on a chair. Uh, as we begin to learn to do that in the retreat, we're able to do it more and more in our daily practice. We're able to do it more and more in daily life. So we develop this ability to observe. So one of the things that we begin often in retreat to be able to do is to observe our thinking more clearly, to see our thinking more clearly. I know until I started really doing uh, some longer sits, uh, I didn't really have that kind of space. It was I wasn't really able to just watch the thinking so much. So, you know, it's a little bit paradoxical, right? The more that we put thinking to the side, the more that we're able to observe the thinking. So a lot of times we just have to put it to the side, put it to the side, and then more and more we're able to observe the thinking. You know, sometimes 
you know, if you're, you know, in a strong meditation or if you're on a retreat, you know, it's just like, you know, there's a lot of space. It's like the thinking is like, you know, you're looking at a movie screen and there's words on a movie screen. Sometimes it's like that. So as we get this concentration, this tranquility, this equanimity, uh, we begin, can begin to look at the thinking more and more. And again, as I said, even on a day like this, in practice in general, at first it's mostly just like, all right, the thoughts are there, put them to the side. The thoughts are there, put them to the side. The thoughts are there, put them to the side. The thoughts are there, put them to the side. Uh, but gradually, as concentration gets stronger in a sit or in a day uh, and in our practice over time, we're more and more able to also take opportunities when they present them selves to us to observe the thinking. So not just say, okay, there's thoughts, I'm going to put them to the side, but okay, there's thoughts, I may be in them a little bit, uh, but I'm just going to take a step back now and observe and just look at the thinking. Just look at the thinking. So one of the metaphors that uh, one of my teachers used many years ago that I've used before uh, is the metaphor of the, uh, or the analogy of the you know, the amusement park shooting gallery. You know, like when I was a kid, we used to have I say, the Jolly Roger, you know, in Farmingdale and Hempstead Turnpike, you know, right? So you probably were there. Where, you know, you had the gun and the ducks going across, right? You know, and a lot of times, at the beginning in practice, you just want to shoot the ducks down, right? There's the thought, boom, 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 right? But as you get more concentration, you just watch the ducks. Or there's times when you well, let me watch the ducks. Let me watch the thinking. Let me begin to understand the thinking. Let me begin to see what this is, this thinking. You know, we spend so much time thinking. You know, you spend so much time involved in thinking. It's like, at some point, you know, we want to see what this thing is that we're doing. You know, what is this thinking that we're spending our whole lives engaged in? What exactly is it? I mean, this is a little bit of a crude analogy, but it's like, you know, uh, people you know, for years smoked, you know, and, but they didn't really know what was in the cigarettes, you know, and then finally it's like, you know, these cigarettes have stuff in them that, you know, it's going to cause you cancer. It's like, well, maybe I better not smoke these cigarettes, you know, but for years people didn't really look at the cigarettes to see what it is that they were inhaling into their lungs, you know countless hours every day. And then people started to look at that and said, you know, maybe this isn't so good. So, you know, we are, as we often say, feeding on these thoughts, feeding on these thoughts, feeding on what, are, what is it that we're feeding on? So as we develop more concentration, we're able to develop more discernment, more discernment, the ability to observe our experience in general. And that certainly, you know, we're talking a lot about thinking. That certainly and very importantly includes observing your thinking, discerning, seeing what this thinking is all about. What are these thoughts all about? As we uh, develop more concentration and as we develop this skill of discernment, of discernment, we begin to develop what's sometimes called by the Buddha, the Dhamma eye or the Dharma eye. You know, 
which basically means that we begin to look at things the way a Dharma student is meant to look at things. You know, a Dharma student is meant to look at things with the Dharma eye through that particular lens. It's just like, you know, if you're an artist, maybe you look at a landscape with a particular mindset or through a certain lens. How is, what can I do in terms of making that a painting? What are these colors all about? What about these proportions? How did, what do they mean to me? I'm not an artist, so uh, maybe that's not uh, quite accurate, but as a Dharma student, gradually we learn to look at things and the idea is we look at our experience with the Dharma eye. This is the way a Dharma student looks at his or her experience. So what does it mean to see things with the Dharma eye? What does it mean to look at our thinking with the Dharma eye? You know, so we develop this ability to have some tranquility to observe, to observe the ducks moving across the panorama of the mind. Uh, you know, we begin to do this. We pick our spots. Retreats are great days to do this. Meditation is really the place to do it in. You know, it's not so easy to do, and maybe you can do it a little bit in a daily life practice. Daily sitting to some extent, but retreats are really great for this, to observe your thinking with discernment, with the Dharma eye. So what does this mean? Well, the first thing that it means, or one of the things that it means, is to look at the thinking and see if the thinking is useful. So really what this means in terms of seeing things with the Dharma eye is seeing the unsatisfactory nature of the thinking, in particular the unskillful thinking. Okay? Although all thinking on some level has an unsatisfactory nature. But in particular in terms of the unskillful thinking. So the Dharma student looks at the thinking and says, is this thinking useful? Is this thinking useful? Yeah. And he or she looks at it and looks at it and looks at it, sitting after sitting, retreat after retreat, and gradually over time as we begin to look at things this way, you know, we begin to see that it isn't so useful. You know, so it's not an intellectual question, is it useful or not? It's something that we're meant to look at things. It's, it's a way that we're meant to look at things and gradually look and gradually look and gradually look and gradually begin to understand. So that's the way, the lens that we look through things. Is this thinking useful? We gradually begin to see that it isn't we gradually begin to see that it's not serving us. We gradually begin to see that these unskillful thoughts about past and future, you know, these habitual patterns of thinking, these thoughts about jobs, relationships, and apartments are painful. We gradually begin to see that this thinking isn't in our best interests. It's not helping us in our efforts to end suffering to find a greater happiness in our lives. I mean, that's really what it means to be a Dharma student, right? This is the way that we look at things. This is what wisdom is. Is what I'm doing leading to a greater suffering or a greater happiness? Is what I'm doing leading to suffering or is what I'm doing leading to happiness? I mean, this is really you know, the big question, you know, as a Dharma student. Now, this is the mark of wisdom, beginning to understand 
you know, what leads to suffering, what leads to happiness, what actions you're taking. In this case, it's the action of pursuing this kind of thinking to really begin to understand uh, what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. I mean, it's very different than the cultural definition of what wisdom is, right? You know, most people think, you know, you're a really a wise person if you, you know, you went to a really good college or, you know, you have... You know, you're a professor, or you're this or that. You know, you have some kind of, you know, you wrote some great treatise, or you wrote a great book, or you know, that's a really smart person. You know, that has got nothing to do. You know, and there's nothing taking. Not that there's anything wrong with that, as Seinfeld would say, but you know, it's got nothing to do with wisdom in the Buddha's schema. Wisdom is taking action that's in support of finding a greater happiness in your life, the happiness of the heart. That's what it means. That's what it means. You know, are we taking action that's in support of the heart, in support of a greater happiness? Is this action of thinking in support of having a greater happiness in our lives? So we look at things through this eye, through this Dharma eye. And that's all the Buddha's really concerned with. Is it leading you to happiness or suffering? He said it very clearly. I'm concerned with suffering and the end of suffering. The next thing that we look at, or another thing that we look at when we look at things through the Dharma eye, and this is what... So these are the kinds of things that you want to look at and see when you're looking at your thinking, those times when you observe, generally in meditation on a retreat. We learn to see the impermanent nature of the thinking, the inconstant nature of the thinking. We learn to see that thoughts come and go. Thoughts come and go. You know, they're not part of something that's fixed in the mind. They're not a permanent component of the mind, these thoughts. There's simply an aspect of this whole field of rising and falling experience, you know, like clouds through the moving through the sky. You know, it's like we generally wouldn't say the clouds are the sky, you know, or the clouds are fixed. You know, they come and go, and some days there's more, and some days there are different kinds of clouds. Well, that's how it is with thinking. And that's what we're asked to see. But we tend to think that the thinking is fixed. This is a fixed part of what I am. Even though intellectually we might not think that. So we're asked in looking at things with the Dharma eye and looking at this thinking to see that it's impermanent. And then thirdly, to see the not-self nature of the thinking. And this is really when, uh, you know, when we can begin to see that thoughts are not self. You know, and this is what it means when we talk about not self. It doesn't mean is there a self or not. It means is there a self in our experience? You know, is our experience, in this case the thinking, arising out of a fixed core of being? 
And as we look at the thoughts, and you know, this is, of course, what we're asking and looking to see, but we begin to see, or what we're asked to see, is that the thinking doesn't rise out of a fixed core. It arises out of conditions. It arises out of conditions, the thinking. It's conditional or contingent. In other words, the thinking is contingent on something that's come before it. In other words, the thinking that's come before it. You know, we think what we think because we've thought that before, not because, you know, we were born with those thoughts in the mind and we have this mind, you know, by birth in a fixed way that just pours out these particular kinds of thoughts. You know, we have think we have thoughts because we've had these thoughts before. They're contingent on what we've thought before. They're conditioned. They're not coming out of a fixed place. They're not who we are. They're just habits of mind. They're habits of mind. We think this way because we've thought this way before. You know, you begin to see this, right? You begin to see how sometimes you see on a retreat, you know, it's like, man, I've been having these thoughts all my life, you know, but... You know, they're really, you know, they started when I was in third grade. I thought about this, this way, and then I just keep thinking this way because that was the pattern I got into. And I just kept following that pattern and following that pattern and following that pattern, that way of thinking. I think one of the good ways to kind of see the not-self nature of thoughts is to, you know, is, is, is to think of the thoughts, you know, Tom Jeff talks about this a lot, as voices in the mind. And oftentimes you see that they're all different voices. You know, there might be certain thoughts of the voice of your parents, certain of your father or your mother or your brothers or your sisters or your friends or your teachers, voices that you've heard in the media, etc. You know, I mean, you've just kind of, you know, adopted that. You were told, hey, you're a schmuck, and then you just keep telling yourself you're a schmuck your whole life. You know, or you were told, you know, that's stupid to do things that way, or, you know, don't you hate those people? So we just keep thinking those things. But that's not inherent within us. We just think those things because we've learned to think those things. So these are things that we have to see. Now, these are things that we have to see. And again, the meditation, the retreat is a great place to see these things. Because intellectually, we may know or may not know these things, but that's not going to bring about change in intellectual understanding. We need to see these things. When we truly see that this thinking is impermanent and it's not self, that it's simply conditioned, when we truly know this, then we know that we're not required to think in this way. And that's when things really begin to change. It's like, I'm not required to think in this way. I'm not beholden to have these thoughts. Then we begin to know that we're not condemned to this thinking. We know that if we want, we can think other thoughts. Because thoughts are impermanent. They're not self. You know, we can replace these thoughts. These thoughts are replaceable. And we really don't understand that. We really don't understand that. Another way that we like to put it to kind of sum it up is that thoughts are fabrications. They're fabricated. We fabricate them. 
looked in the dictionary you know, for a definition of fabrication to make or construct something. You know, so we're making and constructing these thoughts you know, out of other thoughts, out of other ideas that we've had. But they're not fixed. You know, we're making and constructing or some synonyms uh, to fabricate uh, to make up, manufacture, produce. This is what we're doing. You know, they're fabrications, just like this shirt. You know, this shirt is a fabrication. You know, it was made out of whatever, cotton and all different kinds of things and put together and sewn or whatever it is. You know, I remember years ago, uh, I went to this Thai temple out in Queens, and this very well-known, famous Thai master uh, was giving a talk uh, in Thai. And they didn't have a translator, so they said there was me and like two other guys there who didn't speak Thai. So they said, all right, you guys coming down to the basement. And we went down in the basement with this guy's assistant, who was a lay guy from, from, uh, I think, Sri Lanka or Singapore, I think. And uh, this guy was like really, really sharp. And I mean, it was just like a great teaching. And at one point he grabbed my shirt and he said, this is impermanent. This is impermanent. This is not self. Just like all of your thoughts, just like your body, just like your mind, this is impermanent. You know, I mean, that's how they kind of are. It was great teaching. (laughs) But that's, that's what the thinking is. It's just like this shirt. Just like this shirt. You can take it off and put on another one. Nobody's stopping you. Nobody's stopping you. It's the same thing. It's fabricated. It's fabric, right? It's fabricated. We can simply simply stop fabricating if we want to. I can just simply stop wearing the shirt. I didn't realize I was going to wear the shirt. We can fabricate the thoughts that we want to. We can change our thinking just as easily Maybe not just as easily, but just like we can change the shirt because it's fabricated. There's nothing stopping us. Now, this is insight to see this. This is very empowering and very freeing when you begin to see this, that you're not required to think in this way. You're not beholden to think in this way. It's very, very, very empowering, but it's, it's a fairly deep insight, something that you really have to see by observing, by observing, by observing. You know, there's these three levels of insight. The first is learning about something, kind of taking it to heart, like listening to the Dharma talk. The next level is practicing so that you can see these things. And then the next level is really knowing. So you're hearing the Dharma talk, now you've got to practice. You know, you've got to practice. So what the practice is, is basically what the Buddha says. Try it. Try abandoning unskillful thoughts and fabricating skillful thoughts. I mean, we want to be able to test the conditioned nature of the experience. Let's see if it's really conditioned. Let's see what happens when we do this. Let's test cause and effect. You know, I'm saying that thinking is cause and effect. You've had these thoughts before, you'll have them again. You're saying, well, I don't know. I think this is just the way that I think. You know, I mean, that's what we think. So what do you do? 
change the causes. Change the causes and see if there's different effects. See if you can change the causes and have different effects. Which basically that means change the thinking and see what happens. Try it. I mean, that's how you, that's how you learn. That's what the practice is. Change the effects. Change the causes. See what happens. I mean, that's how you really learn and understand that thinking is part of a causal chain. You know, that it's conditioned. I mean, that's how you really, it's the only way you're really going to understand it. The only way you're really going to understand it, in other words, is if you practice it. You know? So you have to practice it. You have to play with it. Practice abandoning th- your unskillful thoughts. Because you have to, as I said the other night in class, abandon the unskillful thoughts to a certain degree. You know, I brought in a glass the other night in class and filled it up to the top with water. You know, and I said, this is how our minds are, you know, filled with these unskillful thoughts. Now, what we want you to do is replace some of these with skillful thoughts. But first, you got to, you know, I drank a little of the water. So there was a little bit of space in the glass for some skillful thinking. So you've got to abandon some of the unskillful thoughts and cultivate some of the skillful thoughts and see what happens. And that's how you're going to understand that these thoughts are conditioned. Thinking is conditioned. It's not self. All thinking can be replaced. And you'll see if it has a beneficial result. So you have to see for yourself if you can do this. We may doubt it. That's okay. Just put the doubt to the side. Suspend disbelief. Right? We talk about, the, you know, I'm going to do it for one block. For one block, let me see if I can do this. All right, I'm walking down the block. I'm hating the day. It's the worst day I've ever had in my life. Life sucks. It's terrible. You know what? For one block, let me see if I can put those thoughts to the side and recognize the blessing that it is to be alive. And let me just see what happens. Let me see if I can do that. Let me see if things begin to change. Let me see if I'm beginning to notice an effect coming out of these causes. Can I really do this? I mean, one of the things you see is like, there's nothing stopping me from doing this. You know, I'm just fabricating. So we have to practice. You know, we have to practice. We just keep experiment. We have this let me see attitude. Let me see attitude. So we have to be very careful because I think, you know, we hear, we hear about what I'm going to talk about next or this idea about replacing thoughts and it seems, you know, I mean, this doesn't seem... Isn't, some, isn't there something more dramatic that's supposed to happen? You know, I thought it was just like one day, all of a sudden. I don't know how I thought it was going to happen. All of a sudden, my mind was going to be pure and filled with love and compassion and joy. It's like, it don't happen like that. You know, it happens because I start thinking those thoughts. And the only way that I'm going to start thinking those thoughts is if I make a conscious effort to start thinking them. That's how things change. It's not magical. It's not magical. It's mostly hard work. Discipline, discipline, discipline. The Buddha said, you know, abandon what is unskillful and cultivate what what is skillful. He said, I would not tell you to do this if I didn't think you could do it. He said, why would I tell you? And he said, I would not tell you to do this if I didn't think it would be for your benefit. But we still have to do it. You know, I mean, his injunction is an injunction to practice. I mean, he gives us a design. Right? We've been talking about that a lot. 
He gives us a repertoire for things that we can think. You know, well, you've had all these thoughts in the past. You saw them today, thoughts of the past, thoughts in the future, um, thoughts of jobs, relationships, apartments, all these habitual patterns. I don't need to... Well, it's a good idea to see what they are, of course, as we always talk about. And, of course, I think we're often left with, well, now what do I think? Right? Well, the Buddha gives you some things to think, beginning with thoughts informed by the sublime attitudes, intentions informed by the sublime attitudes. You know, So you could sit here and think, you know, when is this Dharma talk going to be over? Is it 5 o'clock? How's he going to get it in before 5? You know? or, you can, or you can sit here and think, you know, let, me, let me just be here with, with kindness, with love. Or you could think, let me have compassion for him because he's trying so hard to get it in before. <laughs> you know? you know? So the Buddha gives you things that you can do. You know, like I said, you can walk down the street, oh, this is a terrible day. So that's the reflection part of the sublime attitudes. You know, well, let me reflect on the blessing of the day. And then very generously, he gives us these six recollections that we've been talking about so much. You know, the recollection of the Buddha. I mean, these are the, this is the food, he says. This is the good food for the mind. You've been thinking all this, on eating all this unhealthy food. He said, you know, you've got to eat something. You've got to eat food. You've got to think. You've got to think. You've got to think. This is good food for the mind. Reflect on the Buddha. Recollect the Buddha. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Buddha awakened. The Buddha found true happiness. Human beings can find true happiness. There is true happiness in this life. In this life as a human being, we can achieve true happiness. Good thoughts to have. Thoughts of the Dharma. There is a path to true happiness. You don't even have to use the word Dharma if you don't want to. Sangha, there's people that have done this. There's people that have taught this. There's people who are doing it. There's people right now in this room. Reflection on our virtue. That's what I was working with today in the the sittings. I realized a few months ago that... uh, my recollection on generosity was, I was going to say piss poor, but that won't sound good on the thing, you know. So I really worked on that, you know, and now I realize my recollection on virtue, it's like I have a really hard time, you know, acknowledging my virtue, my goodness. So I was really working with that today. You know, but of course, we have to keep working on it and keep working on it. So there's the recollection on virtue, the recollection on generosity, and the recollection on the devas, which I think we've all been kind of really embracing lately. You know, as the Buddha talks about it, you know, there are these good qualities that the devas represent. You know, it's like the devas are here, you know, love and compassion and concentration and rapture and equanimity and discernment. You know, all of that's right here. All of that's right here within us. It's part of the fabric of the human experience. It's like we can avail ourselves of it. Now, Mara is also lurking around here, too. He's a deva, too. You know, but you know, let's reflect that you know these qualities are part of the human experience, and as a human being, they're available to me. I can avail myself of them. It's very powerful to reflect on that. So these are the things to think about. This is the good food for the mind. And of course, as the Buddha says, you know, we talk a lot about reflecting on some of these things in the sitting, but he says you've got to do it all the time. Because we're thinking all the time. So it's really kind of a 24 and 7 thing. Or or as he says, uh, 
you should rec- he's talking about the recollection of the Buddha. You should develop the recollection of the Buddha while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting at home, in your home, crowded with children. You know, so these are recollections, ways of thinking. You, know, you think as you go throughout the course of the day. I mean, I, th- I love the teaching. It's brilliant because it's like, well, you're telling me not to have these thoughts that I used to have. Now what do I do? I need something to think about. And you do. You need food for the mind. So we have to make this kind of a strong effort. It's a process. And it's an, you know, it's a process. It's a process. It's an ongoing effort that we have to make. You know, our current patterns of thinking, the results of our past conditioning, our habitual ways of thinking, are deeply ingrained. You know, there's deep grooves in the mind. You know, we have to dig some new grooves. You know, and you know, you're gonna have to take your shovel out, your best shovel, you know, and start digging. And that's you know, I mean that's a good metaphor because it requires work. You've gotta dig these grooves in the mind. You know, so it requires this effort. It requires this effort, much effort to dig these grooves in the mind. Practicing these recollections while you're walking, while you're standing, while you're sitting, while you're lying down, while you're busy at work, while you're resting in your home, crowded with children. Requires discipline. Requires discipline. You know, as I really started doing this a lot, I thought back to uh, when I was my senior year in high school when I took the SATs. I've told this story once or twice before. But, uh, you know, back in those days, well, at least in my neighborhood, they didn't have SAT tutors, believe me, you know. Uh, you know but my English teacher, God bless her, Mrs. Harney, said, uh, I guess it was 11th grade, she said, you know, you can buy this book, it probably was $4, that had you know, all these exercises for the English part of the test, and it had 1,500 vocabulary words. Well, it's like, I really wanted to do good on the SATs. I wanted it very badly. You know, just like I want to be happy, you know. Uh, I won't go want to go into the re- the reasons why I wanted to do so well on it, but it had something to do with I got to get out of my house where I'm living, you know. Seriously, so I memorized those fifteen hundred words every day. I'd come home from school and I'd memorize five words. You know, it took me over a month, a couple of months probably, to memorize every word in that book. You know, that was discipline. You know, that was discipline. I mean, I made that effort because it was something that I really wanted. You know, I, somehow the word got out that I knew every word because I was kind of modest, I think, or somewhat modest. People, so everybody's like testing me. You know, abrogate. What does that mean? You know, I was like, I knew every word like like that. I knew the analogies. I knew the antonyms. But it's like we've all done stuff like that. Probably you've all you've all. You know what it's like to develop a discipline, to develop a skill. I mean, it's very countercultural. I mean, I worry about the generations of the future because they don't do that so much. It's click, scroll, you know, point and click, whatever. You know, but we all know what it's like to develop a discipline. You know, to really stay with it, to have that kind of stick to itiveness. So, you know, think about what that was like for you. Maybe there was, you know, playing an instrument or studying or you know, grad school, whatever you did, when you developed that kind of discipline and you did it because it was something you loved or something that you wanted, something that you knew that had benefit for you. It's the same thing. You know, this is a discipline of training the mind. It's a training of the mind that requires great discipline. 
So think about the ways that you've developed discipline in the past and apply that to doing this. You know, make a commitment to doing this. Why? Why? There's only one reason. There's only one reason why we do this, because we want to be happy. We want a greater happiness in your life. If you want a greater happiness in your life, make this effort. Train the mind. Change the way that you think. This is a path to true happiness. <laughs>